Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August the 2nd. Uh, I'm in San Francisco, California, uh, a city which I suspect is somewhat past its prime. Uh, we've all, of course, watched Hitchcock's Vertigo, a, 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 a city, uh, not a city, a film about a city that can't escape its past. I once wrote a book called Digital Vertigo. There's this wonderful moment in Vertigo when um, one of the characters, uh, actually the, the evil guy in the film says, well, San Francisco's changed. The thing that spells San Francisco to me are disappearing fast. There's always nostalgia in cities, I think, for uh, a time when the city was greater, more important, and perhaps that's no truer than the city of Antwerp, now in Belgium. It's the second city of Belgium. I mean, I I can't imagine being the second city of Belgium. Uh, it's bad enough being the first city, Brussels, but the second city is 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 truly depressing. Uh, Antwerp, however, wasn't always the second city of Belgium. It wasn't always uh, a place that people know very little about. It was once one of the great cities of the world. Uh, Michael Pye, my guest today on the show, has a new book out called Europe's Babylon, The Rise and Fall of Antwerp's Golden Age. Antwerp really did have a golden age, perhaps like San Francisco and so many other places. Uh, and I'm thrilled that um, Michael is joining us today, not, uh, not from uh, Antwerp, but from Amsterdam which, uh, unlike so many cities around the world which had a glorious past, also has a glorious future. Uh, Michael, welcome. Uh, Thank you. Why the book about um, uh, Antwerp? Uh, your, uh, your last book um, was, a, was a huge success. Um, uh, a, a city about, uh, sorry, a book about uh, the uh, the the edge of the world. Uh, the uh, the edge of the world was a bestseller. Why did you choose to to write your follow up on Antwerp? Well, actually, edge of the world ends in Antwerp in a way. I'm sort of talking in general terms about the birth of cities, people moving from having a sense of the power of the countryside, you know feudal lords and all the rest of it, and moving into cities and the power of money. And I suddenly started thinking about where could I write about what it was like to live through that period? I mean, a period of a real historical change, maybe like the one we're living now, who knows? A period of plague, maybe like the one we're living now, who knows? And a period which is hidden. Because the fascinating thing is you go to Antwerp now, and there is this actually rather wonderful, vibrant city. I don't think you should be rude about the second city of Brussels. It's one of the most important. Belgium, towns. you mean? No, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> uh, Belgium. Um, I mean, it's one of the most important fashion cities in, in, in the world. It's, it's said by The Economist, no less, to have more cocaine in its sewage system than any other known city. Well, that's Brussels or Antwerp? That's Antwerp. 
Mm. <laughs> Not Brussels. That's Antwerp. And it's a place with extraordinary history. But when you go to Antwerp, when you walk down the streets, you will see the traces of Rubens. You'll see the traces of the great Habsburg Empire ran from Spain. You'll see things which in a curious sort of way hide the glory days of Antwerp. And in the end, what I found was, I thought I was going to be able to write simply a history of a city in its golden days. But no, I was writing about a lost city, as much a lost city as any city that you would get into a dugout and go up the Marawine River to find, you know? A place full of riches, a place full of intrigue, a place full of horror sometimes. An extraordinary city that everybody in Europe knew, knew about and everybody in Europe talked about. What years, though, Michael, just to be clear, because um, not everyone has your historical erudition. Uh, <laughs> Antwerp was Babylon, what, for 50 years, 100 years? For about 50. It starts around 1500, 1505, which is when all of a sudden, for various reasons which are complicated and political, uh, the Portuguese start bringing spice into Europe from India through Antwerp rather than through Bruges. When this starts happening, suddenly Antwerp takes off. It becomes economically powerful, but it also becomes the hub of the world. It becomes a place where you buy things and sell things, the place for doing deals. And the deals that we're talking about, after all, are the deals about spice from the Indies, diamonds from the Indies, gold from Africa, silver from America, everything. Would it be fair to say, Michael, and I know this is a, uh, perhaps rather parochial of me, but would it be fair to say that for those 50 years, uh, Antwerp was the, the Silicon Valley of the world with its reinvention of capitalism, its new technologies, its books, um, its mix of different peoples, all of remarkable talent? In a way, but I'm not sure that Silicon Valley has quite the diversity of Antwerp. I mean, Antwerp had every kind of person living there and also contributing to running the place. Antwerp was extremely, a mixed society is understating it. It, it, it was a cocktail, an explosive one at times. Uh, but yes, I mean, certainly in, in terms of importance, in terms of the fact that everybody wanted to know about it and that it influenced almost everybody's lives one way or another. Yes, yes, Silicon Valley, why not? Well, that would be the last time we mentioned Silicon Valley, Michael. I don't want to just turn this into a conversation either about Silicon Valley or um, or, or San Francisco. Uh, you write so beautifully. Let me read the first page. Um, it's a description of a man called Giov a young man called Giovanni Zoncha from Venice, which, of course, in some ways Antwerp was either replacing or challenging or undermining. Um, uh, and, and, and it's about a, a letter he wrote home from, uh, Zoncho was a Venetian and he came to Antwerp and I, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting you here. He stayed for four years writing home about what he found. He liked the less confining rules, no need to give up butter, eggs and cheese for Lent. And he could walk in the streets at any time uh, with whatever weapons he liked. So if you carried a cannon, nobody would say anything. He listened to the Protestant talk, but worried that the Inquisition might come soon. Most of all, uh, perhaps like, and this is my commentary, like m many Venetians, he liked the girls, even the daughters of the grandees, the primi della terra, and their, wonderful, their wonderfully open ways. I'm not going to uh, 
quote anymore. Everyone else needs to read the book. Um, this was a remarkably tolerant place, Antwerp, wasn't it, Michael? Was that the the key to its success, this mingling of trade, of openness, of a, a, a cultural and, and perhaps even a, a, a sexual liberation from the Inquisition, from the intolerance of much of the rest of Europe? Absolutely. I mean, Antwerp refused to have a bishop because they thought the bishop would bring the Inquisition with him. And Antwerp was very much a town of heretics. These were the people that the emperor, Charles V in Madrid, hated, wanted to crush. Charles V, is Charles, would it be fair to say Charles V was the, the Putin or the Donald Trump or the Bolsonaro of his age, perhaps a little bit more powerful? A bit more powerful and a bit nastier, actually, I think, even than those three. Um, no, he, he, was, he was a creature who really, really, really liked authority. And if anybody wanted to believe something different from him, then obviously they were challenging his authority. You know, it was Les Majestés. It was an offence. It was a crime. So for good political reasons, he hated heretics. On the other hand, he needed the money that only Antwerp could give him. And he was constantly fighting wars and he didn't really have the money to do it. So he needed Antwerp. And yet Antwerp was a town of heretics. And in a way that the, the tangles that this gets into over 50 years are rather wonderful. Yeah, the, but, uh, the, the, you keep on coming back to trade. Um, according to Wikipedia, at least, uh, I'm not sure if that's always reliable, the, the Bourse of Antwerp um, was the first stock market, uh, the world's first purpose-built commodity exchange. Uh, you write a lot about it. It seems to be if there is a, a center to the narrative of the glory days of Antwerp, it's 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 the Bourse. Uh, you write about it beautifully. Again, um, uh, you write for in 1532, uh, the same year Schertz was trying to explain money. This was to Erasmus. Uh, Antwerp was opening its new Burs or Exchange, the model for the engines of the world that Erasmus couldn't understand, the engines of the world that traded in money, in value. Uh, tell me more about the Bourse and the cultural and economic forces that created it, Michael, in Amsterdam. Well, the Bourse was a monument, a real monument, the great civic monument. Antwerp built the Bourse long before it actually got round to building a new grand town hall. It was a spirit of the place because it was a place of exchange. And one of the things that fascinates me is, that of course, the consequence of this is that people get very rich, but it's got all sorts of rather surprising consequences as well. People start valuing art in terms of money. They start dealing in art, by the way, a hundred years before they do it in Amsterdam. They begin selling music for people in general, popular music, even really quite vulgar music. Erasmus thought that some of the writers of some of the more vulgar songs ought to be flogged by the hangman. But all of these things begin to change, change the value of the town. And it's partly because you have this extraordinary mixture of peoples, so many languages spoken on the streets. It was said that even women who hadn't left Antwerp ever in their lives would speak at least six languages because they needed it just to just to, to work in Antwerp and, and to know what was going on on the streets. And trade was the absolute center of this. And the exchanges, by the way, the Bourse became literally the model for exchanges across Northern Europe. The London Bourse, the Royal Exchange, is literally modeled down to the last detail on the Antwerp Bourse. Uh, Here's the painting um, 
of the Bourse, and, and, and your book is full of, of, of wonderful pictures, including um, this one of a merchant and his wife. Uh, Michael, of course, um, Antwerp was also the center of a, a certain kind of religious reformation. Uh, here, here we have an image of Calvinism. To what extent does the history of uh, the, the history of Antwerp in the period that you write about confirm Max Weber's great theory about Protestantism and the origins of capitalism? Not at all. It's the exact opposite, actually, oddly enough. You've got a Catholic regime running things. You've got people who behave very discreetly. I mean, Calvinists were not visible. There were Lutheran merchants, great heretics, of course, and there were many Jews, but disguised as new Christians from Portugal. All of these people put together. And one of the, the story of Antwerp, in a way, is the story of the one place that resisted the violence of the Reformation. It didn't beat people up on the street for thinking or believing the wrong thing for a long, long time. And when that began, and when suddenly people rushed into churches and began smashing images, enforcing their view of worship, it's the beginning of the end of the Antwerp I'm writing about, because the glory years were not just tolerance, it was a combination, it was a possibility of things getting strange. Why yeah. was that, Michael? Here we have an, an, some, some wonderful images of the city, of its uh, commercial uh, vibrancy. Um, again, another uh, image from uh, the Bourse, um, image of the, the top floor of the Bourse, uh, which was also a, a market in art. Um, what was it? Was it the, the toleration of the, the merchants themselves? Was there a political structure? It, it lacked the authoritarianism of, of, of Venice, didn't it? Well, it pretty much lacked a government, to be perfectly honest. I mean, most of the big changes in Antwerp and the way it was laid out and the new streets and the new districts and so on were done by one individual, well, crook, whose best friend once said of him he didn't have a hair on his body he hadn't acquired by theft. Uh, these, this is a place which dealt the energy that came from the connections of trade and doing deals and so on is what powered Antwerp. And really nothing could stand up against it until the Reformation and until the Counter-Reformation and Charles V's determination to stamp out heretics. When that happened, when the Reformation arrived in full force, the Antwerp, the very modern looking Antwerp in some ways, was over. Yeah, here we have um, uh, an image of aldermen feasting. Um, they, they, they look very low countries, Michael. <laughs> Were they imaginative? Did they appreciate art? Were they cultural rebels of one kind or another? They clearly didn't like Spanish. Well, they were cultural rebels of all, all kinds. I mean, they were great gardeners, but they weren't just gardeners. They learned about plants and what plants could do and what herbs could do. And they rewrote the medical systems of, of Europe, really, from their gardens. Quite extraordinary. Yes, they loved art. Actually, they well, partly they loved art and they were great connoisseurs, but you have to say also they were great manufacturers of art. I mean, there were whole assembly lines of kissing cherubs by a man called Jus van Cleef, um, which really are some of the most unpleasant pictures I think I've ever seen, but which were churned out from a whole line of people in his workshop and sold off as product. And that's new. 
Before this, it was usual to go to an artist and you bought from the artist. Maybe you commissioned the artist to paint your portrait or to a picture of your house, whatever. This was something which was already made. You went to the artist's studio and you bought it, or you went to a dealer and you bought it. It's like our idea of art, really. It's not a service. It's not something that happens in a court. It's something that happens in a shop. Bruegel did um, did Babel. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Bruegel did Antwerp. Uh, as you note in the book, he painted Babel twice in Brussels as an official monument, and then he presented it as Antwerp. Was this Bruegel's rather jaundiced view of, of Antwerp, of its diversity, of its commercial corruption? Well, no, because he really didn't want to leave. He was made to leave from Antwerp to Brussels by his mother-in-law, who kept pointing out that in Antwerp he was very close to his last mistress, so he'd better get the hell out to Brussels as quickly as possible. Um, this was an awkward moment. No, he's painting a Babel which is all about construction, all about building, all about change, scaffolding everywhere, machines everywhere. He's in When he gets to Brussels, he's painting a monument, but in Antwerp, he's painting the energy and the action of the town, the fact that things happen there constantly. His monument painted in Brussels it's difficult to imagine anything happening in it, actually. It looks rather like a sort of giant Marriott, slightly oddly designed. Let's look at the map, Michael, of the so-called Spanish Netherlands. It, it looks very much like uh, the same map today, uh, except that it's Belgium and Holland. Uh, but another perspective is the motion, the, the, the travel, the movement in, in Antwerp was very much based on trade. Uh, trade within Europe, but particularly trade around Africa to India. How central in the narrative of Antwerp is its place in this new opening up of the world, um, of, of India uh, and Africa? Absolutely central. I mean, if you think of cities like Venice, they were still tied to trading in the Mediterranean. And if they traded with India, they had to bring goods up through the Red Sea. It was complicated, it was messy, and they weren't focused on that. What Antwerp did with all that mix of people was focus on whatever was opening. If it was India, terrific, with the oceanic routes coming around Africa from India. And that brought all manner of things. It brought diamonds as well as pepper. It brought great riches from the Americas, the silver and so forth that was coming from the Americas, where it might be landed in Seville, just as the spices were landed in Lisbon, but they had to go on to Antwerp to be sold and for people to buy the other things they needed. So one of the, the really important point about Antwerp is that they got this. They were not an empire. They had no interest in being an empire. They didn't even have a navy, mm. but they were the people who were at the center of the organization of these extraordinary new transoceanic routes around the world. They were there when the world opened, and they helped hold the door. It's a wonderful story. Um, we had a few months ago uh, Lawrence Burgreen on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his new book, In Search of a Kingdom, about Drake's circumnavigation of the world and his political relationship with Elizabeth. I guess in Antwerp, there were no Drakes. It wasn't a center for piracy, was it? And the relationship, as you say, in political terms, there was no equivalent of Elizabeth I. 
able to to finance the kind of operation that that, that Drake accomplished uh, uh, by, tra- by by sailing around the world and by uh, the piracy against Spanish ships. No, um, but there, but there wasn't this kind of imperial drive, this national drive at all. I mean, Antwerp was a town that didn't have a court, didn't even have a bishop. It had none of the things that, that, that cities along the North Sea usually had. But, and it didn't, as I say, even have a navy. But it did have the ability to use what other people were discovering. And you find extraordinary things. At this time, there was syphilis was arriving from the West. And a brute called Smilax from China was being used as a possible cure for syphilis. Now, this is fine, but you've got a rather sort of knobbly, shining brute, and you don't quite know what to do with it. That isn't going to do you any good at all. It was in Antwerp that people knew what to do. If you like, they had the theory as well as the practicalities. And you will find people going with a practical doctor from Antwerp to be treated for Smilax as far apart as, well, actually, Venice. Michael, um Listening to your, your, your notion of the diversity of, of Antwerp, one is, of course, reminded of the, I'm not sure if it's the centrality, but the importance of the, uh, the Jewish immigration, particularly from Spain. Uh, you write about this woman in the book, uh, Donna Gracia, uh, who, who came to Antwerp. It was a quite remarkable woman, uh, both as a businesswoman and as a Jew. Tell me about Donna Gracia as uh, an example of the kind of Jewish commercial um, families that poured into Antwerp uh, as a consequence of the Spanish Inquisition? Well, you have to, you have to see this as, as coming from the control that was available of the spice trade. And if you were in Portugal, the people who actually knew how to do deals and had international connections and so on tended to be the Jews who had come from Spain. So Dona Gracia's family had arrived. Uh, her husband was an extraordinarily important man in Lisbon. I mean, he was running he was running the money of Lisbon to some extent. He banked more silver with the National Bank than anybody else had ever done. Um, he died. And the Inquisition came into Portugal. And all of a sudden, Dona Gracia had to get the hell out. But she got out with with a portable business. It was quite abstract in form. It wasn't a warehouse full of spice. It was the deals on which spice could be done. And in Antwerp, her husband's brother was already virtually running the spice trade. And she got to work with him. In both cases, when her husband died, he left the business, his share of it, essentially, to her, to Dona Gracia. When his brother died, he left the control of his part of the business to Dona Gracia. You have an extraordinarily important woman. You have to imagine this as a, this is beyond the Rothschilds. This is somebody who lends to emperors, lends to kings, controls something as basic as the spice trade coming from India by way of Portugal and who also has tremendous courage and determination to be a Jew. She couldn't publicly be a Jew. Um, her husband's brother had had to christen his daughter in the, in the parish church, which later became the cathedral. Um, you had to be respectably Christian. 
but she wasn't having it. And Donna Gracia was one of the people, her family were also involved, who created this kind of, well, thinking of slavery in the States, this kind of underground railway for getting people out of the way of the Portuguese Inquisition. And it was a phenomenal organization. Legally, you could not, if you were a Jew, leave Portugal, and you certainly could not take anything with you. So the first problem was just getting you out of the harbor at Lisbon. The second problem was getting you somewhere that was safe. And you couldn't just come to Antwerp. You had to come to Antwerp at a time when Charles V was not actually beating up heretics all the time. You had to find the right moment. And all of these things, the letters of credit that you needed on the way, and then finally in Antwerp, your exact itinerary, where you went, which inn you stayed in, which boat you traveled in up the Rhine, where you got the horses to cross the Alps. All of that was organized by a committee within which the, the Mendes family, to which Donna Gracia belonged, were absolutely central. So you've got these two things. You've got the fighting, the defense of a Jewish identity, which is really powerful. Um, she was called the great consoler of the Jewish people in exile. And in a way she was, I mean, she made things happen. And at the same time, she was a real mercantile power. When she finally got out of Antwerp and, and went to finally live in, in, in Istanbul, um, which was safer for Jews than anywhere else at the time, um, she took with her a business that meant that on the way out of Antwerp, going to Venice first, she had to stop off in Lyon. Why? Because she had to collect a monumental debt from the French king. And it was really only Donna Gracia who could go into a room and get money out of a French king. Yeah, I think actually Donna Gracia is a remarkable woman. She probably deserves her own book. Maybe you could write a book about her on her own. Um, my, of you? course, uh, Donna is a woman. Um, and the given our preoccupation with diversity, I was struck in the book where, with one picture you offer of, a, of the first uh, painting by a woman of herself. There are also a number of female leaders uh, of Europe at that time, Mary of Hungary, Margaret of Parma. Do we have the earliest inklings, the beginnings, the, the earliest seeds of feminism here in Antwerp, or was there still the sort of post-feudal or feudal inequality between men and women in Antwerp? Did they break the, 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 the conformity, the, the orthodoxy on, on gender? There was a lot of, of, of patriarchal insistence about how people should behave, and a lot of women who simply ignored it. Uh, there was a poet, for example, who wasn't allowed to publish under her own name because if she'd been in one of the literary societies, the Chambers of Rhetoric, she would have had to publish anonymously so that nobody could tell her gender. But she went on publishing, and she developed a reputation across the whole of Europe. She was a poet who was writing bestsellers, it's true that they're pretty um, sarcastically Catholic bestsellers, so sort of basically anti-Lutheran propaganda, but that's uh, quite remarkable in itself. And I'm just looking at the, the portrait of Katharina von Hemsen. It's not just the first self-portrait of a woman painter. It's the first known self-portrait of a painter at work. She shouldn't have been painting. Only men were allowed to join the guild for painters. She was going to have to do all sorts of things like studying anatomy, for example, which obviously no well brought up young girl could do. She did it. And she ended up going to the court in Mechelen and Brussels, that's to say the court of Charles V's representatives in the Spanish Netherlands, 
and painting a series of portraits of women whose names we might not otherwise know. That has to be a feminist statement, but really it's just one woman's extraordinary refusal to acknowledge the things that were supposed to hold her down. There are many women, of course, um, represented in this age who, who had no voice. Here we have an image of a slave woman. Uh, and there is a dark side to, uh, to Antwerp's glory years. And of course, as so often in European history, it's associated with slavery. Um, uh, you, you write, well, you're, you're writing about Albrecht Dure, the, the great artist, was in town in, in 1520. Um, uh, the, uh, you write about Dure's first black model. She still had the stick. She has the still resigned look of a woman who knows she can never go home. Uh, I'm not sure. Was, was this, is this the Dure work or is this another work? That is the Dure work, yeah. Uh, so it's a wonderful, you, you have a wonderful way of describing it. She does indeed like a woman who, who, who looked like a woman who, who never went home. How, how much does slavery and, and, and Antwerp as a commercial heart of slavery, how much does that stain its reputation and its glory is. I know, I, I don't want to get in the argument about how we think of slavery today versus 500 years ago, but how bad was Antwerp on the, uh, the scale of other slave centers? Well, Antwerp was, as it was in every other way, complicated. I mean, it was the place you went to to buy, for example, copper bangles, which were the currency for buying slaves in a lot of places on the, on the west coast of Africa. But at the same time, Antwerp had a bigger black population, African population, and southern African population, not just northern African Berbers and Arabs, um, than any other city in Europe, barring Lisbon. Some people, some, quite a lot of black people, actually chose to live in Antwerp. There are records of black children being baptized, good conduct certificates being handed out to somebody who's been in the Dyer's Guild for many, many decades. These are people who chose to be there. So it's a very strange and equivocal moment. Remember, it's very early in what we think of as the slave trade. The middle passage across the North Atlantic hasn't even started yet in a serious way. Um, and the slave trade across the South Atlantic is nothing like the volume of the North Atlantic's trade later. And so it's, it's curious. It was not a moral issue. On the other hand, it wasn't a practical issue either. Antwerp had a law which allowed any slave who landed in Antwerp to claim their freedom, but almost nobody did, which is interesting. I don't think they wanted to go on being slaves. It does rather suggest that they didn't find themselves sort of trapped into slavery in Antwerp. Uh, Michael, I'm sure you've seen the wonderful movie, the British movie uh, in Bruges. Um, which I guess could you could have made it in Antwerp. In Antwerp, it's a very bloody film, or it ends with with bloodiness. And and your history also ends in the same way with its terrible sacking. Here we have uh, the Spanish fury and the ruin of the town in on the fourth of November, fifteen seventy six. One of the darkest days in 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 sixteenth century European history. How did the glory years come to such a a shuddering end. How, how, how catastrophic, how tragic was the end of, of basically Antwerp's uh, remarkable history? Let me give you the circumstantial version. Um, Charles V wanted to control Antwerp and he wanted to stamp out heresy. He wanted very much to 
bring in troops who would do this, a military force who would make things happen. Unfortunately, he couldn't pay them. Part of the reason he couldn't pay them was that he was actually undermining what made Antwerp work, its heretics and its mix of people. Eventually, the soldiers became completely fed up. They were hungry, they were not paid, and they couldn't turn on Charles V, who was safely away in Madrid, so they, they turned on, rather Philip II by that point, um, who was safely away. No, they turned on the town. And in a way, there'd always been this thing of the, the emperor's fort when it was built. The first two bastions were built not looking outwards to defend the town, but inwards so that he could fire on the town if he needed to. Soldiers came into town, the soldiers ran riot. They ran people to the walls and forced them off so they drowned in the moat. They burnt things. Christopher Plantin had to ransom his presses, a great publisher trying to get back his livelihood. Yeah, this is the guy, uh, he, he, was he the one who, who made the first atlas of the world? Uh, well, no, but he was a publisher. He was, he was the great publisher of that. Right, so here we have the image of Plantin. But it also, um, the first atlas of the world was, was, was made in, in, in Antwerp too. But anyway, sorry, back, back, back to the, the terrible well, end to, uh, to, to Antwerp's glory years, the Spanish fury. There are two things that's happening. One is blood on the streets. One is sheer horror. Uh, admittedly, the pictures of that time are, of course, propaganda. They're meant to make you think badly of the Spanish, but it's not difficult to do that. Um, they, but also, apart from the sheer horror of what happened in those days, and it is horrific and grotesque, there was also the fact that this was the struggles and the fights and the wars of the Reformation that were going to make the whole of Europe bloody for a century, coming in force to Antwerp. So it was... Uh... It was a, a sneak preview of the tragedy. How should we remember uh, Antwerp overall, Michael? I, I have this paragraph that I like from the book, and I'm quoting it. Uh, Antwerp was full of people passing through, just as almost everything bought or sold or promised in the city was only passing through. The goods were not the point. They did not feed, clothe, or decorate the place. The point was the deals and the profits. And the world came to pay for everything in beer, in bills payable in Antwerp, the world's creditor. I love that paragraph. Is that how we should remember Antwerp or should we do it in more aesthetic terms by remembering its art, its creativity? I think we ought to remember the connection between the two, which is strange to think about now when we sort of separate out the academic from the commercial, the financial from the artistic. Well, no, actually, these were all entangled. There was a whole class of Antwerp merchants who edited Latin texts, who wrote really scholarly stuff about, about Roman history in particular. And the, when people came to Antwerp, they went to talk to the merchants rather than the grand people of the town, because it was the merchants who had this width and breadth of interests, who wanted to know about the world, who wanted to study it, and who wanted to represent it to other people. And that, I think, is what we ought to remember. That there was this brief period when a town that seems to have been obsessed with trade and was particularly obsessed with money, which starts a lot of the things that we start about now. I mean, if you look at a Van Gogh, is the first thing you think about the quality of the paint in the upper left-hand corner? 
although it was the first thing you think about the price that was paid for the same painting at Christie's a few years ago. We think in terms of money, we think that's what value is. This is the point at which things went wrong, because although that was happening, where people were thinking in terms of money as an abstraction, they were thinking in financial terms, not practical trading terms day by day. It could have gone one of two ways. And in fact, the way that it went, which is in the end leading to our modern world, was determined by the arrival of the clashes of the Reformation, by the hatred of the Habsburgs for heretics, and by the not particularly tactful behavior of Calvinists trying to run Catholics out of town. That was the bad thing, the really bad thing. It could have gone either way. I think what we have to look at Antwerp as an electric time of possibilities, all sorts of possibilities, science, history, medicine, business. Well, you captured it, Michael, uh, that those possibilities in this glorious 50 years of technology, of business, of creativity, of art, of sexuality, in this uh, tremendous book. Uh, You're one of the best writers, I think, in this genre in the world. Your new book, Europe's Babylon, The Rise and Fall of Antwerp's Golden Age, is characteristically beautifully written and researched, erudite, readable, a lot of fun. Congratulations on the book. You're talking to me, Michael, from Amsterdam, which in some ways, I guess, has inherited Antwerp's mantle. Maybe it's still a bit of a a tourist version of the 16th century Antwerp. Uh, What else should people be reading in addition to your wonderful new book, Europe's Babylon, to make sense, as you suggested in this conversation, of our complicated times of COVID and uh, disruption? Well, I'll give you another book about a time when there were all sorts of possibilities and one particular man lived out most of them without ever really doing anything. It's a book by Richard Zenith about Fernando Pessoa, the, po- the Portuguese poet. He's wonderfully obscure. I mean, his great works were kept in a trunk until about 20 years ago and then not even taken out and put in or any kind of order. But this is a man who looked around the world and was fascinated by everything that he saw and found, who invented other names and other writers in order to write in their spirit, in their soul. And it's the most extraordinary mixture of complicated psychology, fascinating social history, and a sense too of going into a town, Lisbon, a great city, but a city with a complicated history, and living in that city for a while. I think it's magnificent. Can you just remind us of the the title and the author again? The author is Richard Zenith, as in Zenith, um, and the book is called Fernando Pessoa. It is just called that. Um, we'll have to get him on the show. Is he a friend of yours? Yes, he's in Lisbon. He's good. Good. Okay. Well, Michael Pye, the author of the new Europe's Babylon, The Rise and Fall of Antwerp's Golden Age. Uh, wonderful book, wonderful conversation. Keep well, Michael. Enjoy Amsterdam, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future about Northern Europe, its creativity and its centrality to the world. Thank you so much. Okay, terrific. Good to talk to you.